Well, I love it whenever the kids lead us in worship, and uh, like Nathan said, uh, you, you always have a, a couple of little funny things that happen, little stories. One of the things, uh, I think right before the service started, one of the little girls was coming in, and I was standing on the front row, and uh, they were just about to start, and she said, here, hold this, I'm running late, and it was a silver purse, and so I thought, okay, yeah, don't quite know what to do with it, doesn't go with my outfit, you know, but yeah. Uh, Silver is supposed to go with everything, but it was so funny. Just hold this. I got things to do. And, uh, and then, you know, I don't know if you noticed, um, but they have a tendency to stand right here on the very edge, you know, right on the edge. We, we joke with Nathan sometimes that one day he's going to back up and do a backflip off of this. And whenever I preach, I mean, uh, you just kind of know where the edge of the platform is and you stand with your toes over. But when the little, when the kids do that, oh, it makes me nervous because they're all standing there and their toes are hanging off the edge. And, and the th- but the thing that stands out to me is it's so authentic, isn't it? It's just such an authentic, authentic expression of of worship. I think that's the way it should be. That's what God looks for in every one of us, is that we just authentically worship Him. We bring our whole heart uh, ultimately to Him. Well, we've been in a series here lately called Burning Questions, and the burning questions specifically have been in regards to the church. It's been a good series. Uh, you know, you've turned in questions. That's where the burning questions comes from, uh, questions that you anonymously have turned in. And uh, on Sunday mornings, we sift through those, and we move through some, uh, prepare message for ones that are a little more applicable, a little more pertinent to what we're looking at here as a church. And then other ones I answer uh, on a blog that's on our website. We've got quite a few posts that are there if you want to check that out at some point during the, uh, during the weeks ahead. But it's been a great series. You've asked very, very good questions. And what we've been looking at, as I said, is this, the whole concept of church. A lot of different people, I'd say even in this room today, there are a, just a variety of, of thoughts about what church is. Some of you were raised in a family where church wasn't even on the radar. You didn't really even get a, a, any kind of a grasp of what church was all about until you got older, maybe even until just recently. And even now, you may still be just sort of checking things out, trying to figure out, well, what is this whole thing about church? What, what, what goes on with it? And others of you, you were in church since you know, before you were born. I mean, your mom was you know, waiting for you to be delivered, and you, she was in church every Sunday, and you've hardly missed a day since. And then there's everything in between. You know, and our ideas about church are just all over the map. You know, for some, you may have been raised in a church uh, uh, environment that was uh, almost oppressive, you know, almost like, you know, a dictatorship to a degree, you know, where every move was watched and, uh, you know, you got a call, you know, on the phone from every little thing you did outside the, 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 the boundaries. Others of you, church is just... It really is meaningless to some degree. It's kind of having my name on a list, and that's about all it is. I'm just trying to cover my bases, so I joined the church just like I joined the health club and just like I joined the civic group, and it's just kind of another group. Of course, everywhere in between would be represented as well. So this series has helped us to, to look at the whole concept of church and to look at it from a biblical perspective in response to a lot of the questions that you've asked. One of the first things that we learned was that, that church is, is one of those things that moves us from a mindset of me to a mindset of we. It's not all about us. You know, it's, not, uh, it's not about us at all, to be honest. You know, we don't come, hopefully, to worship, and, and, and we, you know, we only look for you know, to have the itch on our back scratched, or we only look for what's going to make us comfortable. You know, that, that's not at all what church is about. Church is a place where we collectively, as followers of Jesus Christ, we come, and it's, it's like we're a bowl full of people, right? We, our lives have been redefined, and, uh, and we're called to put Christ on display through our lives, uh, like a mirror that reflects His holiness and, and his, uh, his glory. We're called as a, 
as a, as a bowl full of people with a heart for one another, you know, to love one another, to be there for one another, to pray for each other. You know, we're called to invest our lives in one another. Uh, and so it's not like any other organization. You know, we're, we're called to a deeper call. I mean, we follow Christ, but we're connected one to another. And, and then we're called as a, as a megaphone, really, kind of the mouthpiece for, for Christ, where we proclaim the message of the gospel. We're going to look at that a little bit more today. But here's one of the things I want to challenge you with, that, that if, if what the Bible says about heaven and about hell is true, if everything the Bible says about the existence of heaven, the existence of hell, the realities of heaven, the realities of hell, if all that's true, the way the Bible says, then the church is the most important organization in all of history. It's more important than any corporation. It's more important than any academic institution. It's more important than any other nonprofit, so to speak. It is more important than any humanitarian effort. The church, if heaven and hell are true the way the Bible speaks of, then it is only the church, it's only that collection of redefined people who have a relationship with Christ. It's only those people who have the potential to impact people's forever. And, and so because of that, if, if the Bible is true, as we, as we believe it is about heaven and hell then what we study about the church has, has enormous implications for your life, for my life, for we collectively, for this community, for the world as well. So it's so important that we, that, that we move through this series, and the questions you've turned in have just been amazing, so good. Some of them very difficult. Some of them push the hot, hot topic buttons, as we're going to have a few of those today. But uh, very good. Help us in helping us to dig in and to, uh, to take a look at this thing called church. One of the things we looked at last Sunday was the, the perspective of membership in a local church. You know, the Bible doesn't ever say, thou shalt join your local church. It doesn't tell us that. Uh, you're never going to find that in the Bible. You know, there, there are certain camps of Christians that, that have a perspective that uh, church membership is unnecessary, it's, uh, it's unneeded, you know, it, it's, it's a hindrance to some degree. You know, we're all a part of the body of Christ as believers. You have camps that kind of hold to that. I believe differently, however. I believe that even though the Bible doesn't tell us, thou shalt join a local church, what, I've, what I have found is that there are certain indicators in the Bible that help us to understand that, that really membership in a local church where we have planted our feet and said, this is, this is, these are my people, you know, uh, th- this is my church family, uh, I think that's, that's biblical. And there are indicators. We looked at those last Sunday. If you weren't here, you you can hear that message on our website. But just a basic rundown was that uh, when we look in Scripture, the word church itself reflects more often than not in the New Testament. It shows a local congregation, a visible congregation, a literal congregation of people in a specific place. And so the word church refers not to just the universal body of believers, though it does that on occasion. More often than not, it points to a specific group of people, Christians that have linked arms, so to speak, that have said, you know, this is our church, this is where we serve, this is where we live. And so the wording in the Bible helps to point to that. There were also certain lists in the New Testament, lists where widows were to be cared for, lists that dealt with uh, correcting people that had wandered in their faith, that had moved off into uh, uh, extremely disobedient behavior that was bringing the name of Christ into reproach. And there were lists as to how to deal with those people. And what it showed was is that there was this sense in the New Testament where congregations were, they were localized and, and they did things together. They collectively made a decision. And there's even talk in the New Testament, and we'll look at this in a couple of weeks, where, uh, where some people, because of their, their extreme disobedience, they had to be dealt with by the church as a collection of believers. And they had to deal with them quite severely because of their unwillingness to obey and to, and, and to be submissive to what God wanted for their lives. And so there's this picture where they're bound around the church. You know, there are those that are in and there are those that are out, and that supports really this whole picture of church membership. But even pastors, 
You know, I'm going to give an account one day for how I have, have served God as a pastor. The Bible makes that real clear. And I don't believe I'm going to be accountable for, you know, believers in you know, Indonesia or believers, you know, in the state of Texas. I'm going to be responsible and accountable for the believers that God put here in this church family. And I don't believe I'm going to give account. I may be wrong. I may find out and get shocked when I get there. But I believe, I don't know that I'm going to give account necessarily for those that, uh, that, that, that never come to that place to say, this is my church and, I, and I'm going to join and this is my church family. I don't, I don't know that I'll give account for those that just casually breeze in and breeze out and, and never really count this as their church family. I think what I'm going to be accountable for as a pastor is, is, uh, would be those that have said, this is where God is planting me as a Christian to serve and to invest my life. And so all that put together, I think, paints a real clear picture of, of the expectation of church membership today. You know, if we don't join a church, if we're not part of a living, breathing church family, we have no accountability, really. And there, there's no, no accountability. We can live our lives any old way we want. And there's very little accountability for that as a result of it. And so for us not to be a part of a church family, I think it shows somewhat of a, some immature thinking and that, you know, I can do this by myself. I don't need other people. That is so unbiblical. Yeah, but it also kind of shows some selfishness if we refuse to be a part, the way Scripture speaks of, of a local church family and to cast our lot there and to say, this is my church. Because it's a lot easier for us to go our own way and to pick and choose from a lot of different ministries than it is to say, you know what, I'm going to be a part here and I'm going to be a member here and I'm going to be uh, invested here and whenever I get my feelings hurt, I'm going to work it out and whenever someone makes me mad and someone hurts me or, or does wrong against me, I'm going to forgive. I'm just going to work this out the way the body of Christ should. I'm not going to go running off. And so all of those things put together paint a real clear picture, I believe, of church membership. Well, today I want us to shift gears a little bit in response to a couple of questions that were turned in and the burning questions. And I want us to begin looking at expectations for church membership. And there's a real, there's a real tension there when you start thinking about expectations because for a lot of people they would wonder, you know, are there really expectations for me as a member of a local church? You know, for most of you, your members here, obviously, this is where you live, this is where you are today. For others, you may be here from out of town, and your membership is somewhere else. You know, you're going to leave, and next Sunday, you'll be sitting in your church with your people, and, and you're going to be worshiping in your church family. But regardless of where we are, regardless of where our membership is, if we are a part of a church family as members, are there expectations there? In other words, should the church open the doors to just anyone who's willing to come? Should the church open the doors to anyone who's willing to sign their name on the dotted line and to say, I want to be a member of this church? Should there be a bigger conversation? Are there expectations for those who count themselves as members of a church family? You know, for me, not, not as a pastor, but for me as a Christian. Now, I've been in churches where I wasn't on staff uh, as a believer, and I've been on churches, obviously, where I have been on staff as a believer. Uh, do the expectations change? You know, is it some kind of a revolving door there where, where expectations are lowered for some and raised for others? I mean, is it even right for the church to expect anything? After all, aren't we saved by grace? I mean, can't we not just worship rooted in grace? I mean, should we have expectations? Here, here's what I want to do. I want us to answer, those, or answer the couple of questions we're going to have by sifting them through Scripture. And I want to try the best I can. This is, this is, a, this is a deep topic. It is... It warrants far more than 30 minutes of speaking time. Uh, it will take a long time to chew on some of the things I'm going to share today. But I hope that, that when we finish looking through Scripture, I hope that your understanding of what it means to be a part of a local church as a member has been challenged 
and deepened. And I hope that your understanding of the expectations of what it means to be a member of a local church have been deepened as well. And so two questions that have been turned in, I'm going to read them in just a second. I'm going to answer them more specifically on the blog post later this week. Today I want to use them as a bit of a springboard into this discussion on expectations for church membership. Let's take a look at the first hot topic question that's been turned in uh, through the burning questions, both of these anonymously. It says, the homosexual lifestyle and the pressure to accept it by the mainstream media is more prevalent than ever. How does the church take a stand against this sin in love while overcoming the labels of being judgmental, bigoted, non-progressive, and we could go on and on? And is that even possible? Second question is somewhat similar, a little bit shorter. It simply says, why are we not more welcoming, we as the church community, uh, why are we not more welcoming and loving towards gay Christians and non-Christians? Those are perfect examples of burning questions. Questions where I probably would not raise my hand and say, I have a question, could somebody answer this for me? But when you create an environment where you can jot the questions down anonymously and then have them dealt with from Scripture, yeah, they're great questions to wrestle with. Let me just say that I think the church today, by and large, has fumbled these questions pretty badly to a large degree in different ways. For some, they've dealt with questions like this. The church has today in this country in which we live, and they've tried to widen the parameters. They've tried to expand the boundaries in ways that God never intended. And then on the other end of the scale, you've got churches that have, uh, that have come at this issue, specifically the homosexual issue, as well as many other cultural issues, and they've come at them with, with a completely wrong heart, completely misplaced per, uh, perspective, completely uh, uh, unchristlike attitude, to be honest. And so what is the balance, not on this topic specifically, but when you look at the topic of expectations within the body of Christ, where does that balance lay? Are the doors of the church, so to speak, open to anyone who wants to join? Or are there higher expectations? And then once a part of the membership of a local church, does the bar go higher or does it then go lower? Let me give you a principle I hope you'll jot down, and we're going to sift through this this morning, looking at a lot of different passages of Scripture as we do. Jot this down. It's going to be key to everything we're going to look at. And the simple principle is this, that for us to really properly understand church membership on a local level, properly understanding church membership really requires that we, number one, understand the gospel, and number two, that we understand lordship. We can bring up that principle. Properly understanding church membership requires that, one, we understand the message of the gospel. And number two, that we understand the, the, the scriptural con, uh, connotations of lordship. So let's take a look at the gospel first. We're going to let scripture speak for itself. When you look at the gospel and you look at the, the nature of the gospel, the gospel makes certain demands upon us. And yet the gospel at the same time adds to us things that we could not have possibly earned on our own. And so whenever you look at the gospel, let's take a look at some passages of Scripture that lay it out for us. The first is Romans chapter, uh, let's go ahead and bring it up, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It simply says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here, here's the, the starting point when you look at the message of the gospel. We're not talking about the gospel of cooking or the gospel of woodworking or the gospel of basketball. We're talking about the gospel message of Jesus Christ, right? And when we look at the message of the gospel, this is the jumping on point. And it jumps on in Romans 3.23 when it says that all of us have sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, there is a God and we're not him. And this God is perfect and he's holy and he's righteous and he's just and he's good. 
He's existed before the beginning of time. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has expressed himself most clearly through the person of Jesus Christ. And when we look at our relation to this God, a God who has revealed himself personally and clearly in the pages of the Bible, when we look at ourselves as created in light and in relation to God who is creator, we find that our lives are racked with sin, whereas his is not. And this sin, meaning open rebellion, it's not a mistake. If I jot a wrong number on my tax return, that's a mistake. Right? If I make a right when I made it, should have made a left at the red light, then I, I've made a mistake. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is rebellion. It's open rebellion against God. The Bible says every one of us, starting on this platform and moving to the back of the room, every one of us have done that. And so we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, there are ramifications for that. Because when we sin in the sight of a God who's holy and perfect and pure, even though he loves us unconditionally, there's an accounting for that kind of behavior, right? There's an accounting for sin. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6, verse 23, that there's an accounting for that. It says the wages of sin is death. You know, I look at it in regards to payday, right? You like your job, don't you? Yeah, well, some of you might not. You're looking for a new one. Just don't tell the boss that might be on the road behind you. But, but you're, you like your job, but man, you love payday. I like what I do, you say, but I love payday. You know, payday is when you get the wages for what you've done through the course of that one week, two week period. Well, the Bible says the same thing, that there are wages. There is a payday for our sin. And the Bible says clearly that the payday for our sin in the sight of God, maybe not in the sight of others, but in the sight of God, the payday for our sin is death. Now, it's a physical death, yeah, but it's also talking specifically about a spiritual separation from God. In other words, when we sin against God, we die spiritually. In fact, we are even born with that sin nature. Yeah, these are beautiful little kids, 27, 28, 30 of them that were up here. Not one of them had to be taught how to do what was wrong, right? Right? Not a one. It's inherent. We know how to do wrong. What we have to be taught, what we have to have molded and shaped into us, is how to do what's right because we have the sin nature pretty well covered. And as we get older, that expresses itself in rebellion against God. The results of that, because God is good, God is just. He has to judge it. The effects of that sin is death. Say your family is, a, is, is, a, is part of a violent crime. You're, you're the victim of a violent crime. You go to the courthouse the day of the trial, and the person who has perpetrated this crime against your family member is there on trial. And say the judge looks down from his judge bench, and, and he says, you know what, I, I declare this, uh, this case uh, to be dismissed. Uh, I have chosen to, uh, to just simply require nothing in payment from this, from this uh, uh, person who has committed this crime. He's free to go. What would you say? You'd say that's either an unjust judge or you would say that's a judge who is corrupt. I mean, he, he's just chosen not to apply justice or he's just all out corrupt. We understand that. We know that. But why do we expect differently from God? You see, when, ju- when God judges sin as holy and perfect and pure and he looks at his creation that he loves desperately and has proven that love through Christ, he still has to judge sin. He still has to, has to uh, pass sentence and judgment on sin and the, the payment for that sin requires death. Here's where the good news comes. The end of that verse tells us that the free gift of God is eternal life. And it comes specifically, there is a condition. It comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 explains a little bit in more detail. When it says that God demonstrates his own love towards us. He proves it. He, he, He makes it evident to us. He demonstrates his own love towards us. Put your name right there. You can put your name. God demonstrates his own love towards Brooks. 
towards you, towards every single person who's ever lived. He proves and evidences and, and, uh, and makes clear, demonstrates that love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were there, so to speak, with a whip in our hands and the Savior in front of us to give one more shot to his back, while we were holding the whip, so to speak, as sinners with nothing good to bring to the table, it was in that condition Christ died for us. He said, it was 2,000 years ago. Yes, it was 2,000 years ago. God is all-knowing. He knew the rebellion that I, would, that I would live in my life. He knew every single instance where I would rebel against him and thumb my nose at him and say, I don't care what you want, God. I'm doing my own thing here. He knew all that, and he died for me anyway. That's the highest demonstration of his love for us. And yet you say, so then why do we have hell? I mean, if we're all good to go because Jesus died in our place and he's already paid our, you know, made our payment, he's become our substitute, then why do we have hell? Well, there is yet another expectation. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, make it real clear. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, rescued, forgiven, slate wiped clean. Now, it doesn't mean just an intellectual belief. You know, where we say, okay, Jesus, I, I, believe, I believe who he is. I believe he died. I believe he rose. Okay, he's God. He was also man. I don't understand it, but I believe it. I'm good to go. Now, can I just go live my life, please? It's not intellectual assent. It's not intellectual agreement. Belief, when it speaks there, it paints a picture that belief that results in surrender. It's total faith in the message of the gospel that I am bankrupt and sinful without Christ. And yet, when I surrender my life to him, and I place my faith in him, and I believe who he is to the point to where I give everything to him, the picture that this paints is that then I am saved, then I am forgiven, then I am rescued. It has nothing to do with joining a church or getting baptized or putting money in a plate or doing good deeds. It has everything to do with our response to the Savior, Jesus Christ, that God has sent for us. In fact, Paul would summarize his message of the gospel whenever he was, whenever he was writing, uh, uh, or when Luke captures his words in the book of Acts, chapter 20, Paul summarizes in, in a conversation the heart of his message. Look at what he says. He says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I was teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. Here, here was, here, here's the gospel of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, here's the message of my, uh, uh, the primary heart of my message, Paul says. Number one, repenting from your sin. You turn from it, you leave it behind the best that you can. And in that same motion, you turn and you place your faith in surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's my message. That's the gospel. That's what I've staked my claim to. That's the only thing I've been called to do is to proclaim that message and to live it out in a way that gives teeth to it. That's what Paul would say. Now, when we respond to that message and we give our lives to Christ, and it's not a, I'm going to do better, and I'm going to do better, and I'm going to do better so that God will accept me. No, whenever we respond to that message and we count as done by Christ everything we need and we place our faith in Jesus, there is a great exchange that takes place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 begins to show us in verse 17, look at what it says. It says, if anyone is in Christ, if we respond to that message and surrender, then he is a new creature. <laughs> yeah. Everything on the inside is rearranged, it's changed. You know, the old sin done away with, there's a new life that comes. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. We get redefined when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. It goes on to say in verse 21, that same chapter, that he, God the Father, made him God the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that, here's why, we might become the righteousness 
of God in him, that we might become, not so that people can say one thing, but in our hearts we really know we're different. No, there is a transformation that takes place that when a sinner like me places their faith in Jesus Christ and we surrender our lives to him, there is a transformation that takes place on the inside where God takes all of the righteousness of Christ and he applies it to my account. And he takes all of the sin that, 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 that uh, constituted who I am and he applies it to Jesus, so to speak, on the cross. And that when Jesus died on the cross, he became sin for you and for me. He became that so that we could become his very righteousness through him. Does that make sense? That is a great, great exchange. You'll never find a deal like that on QVC. You'll never find a deal like that on late night television. There is no friend that you have that is trying to sell you something that can give you anything better than that. It is a free gift that God offers, but there are expectations. We have to respond to that message. And so when you wrap all that up, here's, here's what this looks like when I begin to look at it. When I look at the message of the gospel, what I see is that it changes lives. A life that has been impacted by the gospel is going to be a life that has changed. I mean, Romans chapter 8 says you're more than a conqueror through him who loved you. Romans chapter 6 says for the believer, you are no longer held powerless against sin. No, we, we have someone in us, the Holy Spirit, who gives us the strength to stand against sin, to overcome temptation. 2 Corinthians 5 says we're new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5 also says we're ambassadors for Christ. We're representatives of Christ. Uh, of Christ. John chapter 1 tells us that uh, specifically that when we place our faith in Christ, we become a child of God himself by adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. So how does that all play into church membership? It, it completely takes off the table the comment that says, oh, I prayed that little prayer one time. And so now I want to join. And I don't I know my life's not a whole lot different, and I don't have any, any uh, uh, specific plan or desire to surrender my life to Jesus on a daily basis. I'm going to still live the way I want to. I mean, I'll be one way Sunday morning, 9 to noon, but then I'm going to live life the way I want Monday, and I'm going to rip people off at work on Tuesday. I'm going to go out with the guys on you know, Friday night and do my little thing. You know, my life isn't going to change. My life has never changed, but I prayed the prayer, and now I want to be, be a member of a church. That goes completely against the life-changing, life-transforming nature of the message of the gospel. And so when we hear the message of the gospel, that it's not just a watered down, oh, we're all fine with God, you're okay and I'm okay. When we realize the gospel is not that, that the gospel is not, oh, just pray a little prayer, the doors are wide open, just come on in, one more won't hurt. When we understand that the message of the gospel is that it changes lives inherently from the inside, working its way outside, when we understand that, what does that do to church membership? Does that raise the expectation or lower it? It raises it. One of the reasons I believe that churches today at best are ineffective, at worst are dying and getting replaced with health clubs and grocery stores and restaurants is because they're filled with people, in this country at least, who know very little of sacrifice, who know very little of persecution, who know very little of a life that's surrendered to someone else. The reason churches are ineffective at best and closed down at worst is because the people who fill those churches have long since forgotten the basics of the message of the gospel. It changes life. And yes, we've got a long way to go. And if you were to look at where I was and where I am, I, I think there's some progress there. But when, if you were to look from where I am to where I need to be, man, there, there, is, a, there is an uphill climb. I've got a long way to go. I mean, I wrestle with all kinds of stuff. I'm inherently, I'm selfish, left to myself. I mean, I, I can take the selfish first place prize almost every single time. 
issues of pride, all kinds of stuff. You know, get aggravated, angry, and impatient, and the list goes on and on and on. We've got a long way to go. We're talking about having arrived, and then you can join the church. What we're talking about is that the nature of the gospel moves us from point A progressively closer and closer and more like Jesus Christ over time. And the reason the church isn't reaching people is because those on the outside are looking, at, looking in, and they're seeing people that are stuck way back here who claim to know Jesus for 30 years but still live lives that aren't different. And the church has quit expecting anything from one another. And so when we look at expectations for church membership, we're going to properly understand what it means to be a member of a church when we begin to understand again the simple message of the gospel and the nature of the message of the gospel. But we'll also begin to understand a little bit better what church membership is all about whenever we begin to understand the concept of lordship. Lordship. In secular first century Greek culture, the word kyrios was the Greek word used that translates Lord. In a secular sense, it referred to an owner, one who was in authority. And you use it in a secular sense. When it was applied in the New Testament, kyrios was often applied to God himself. You know, the kyrios, or Lord of heaven and earth, meaning he is the owner, he is the creator, he is the one in authority over all heaven and all earth. Well, when Jesus walked this earth, that same title was applied to him in a variety of different ways. Probably the one that is most often recognized is in Philippians chapter 2. When that word kyrios is used to describe Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, For this reason, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and he bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Not that Jesus Christ is an excellent teacher. Not that Jesus Christ is a moral leader. Not that Jesus Christ is a culture changer. (laughs) Though he was all those things. But that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is owner. He is master. He is in superiority. He is in prime authority. That's the teaching of the Bible. In fact, it goes so far as to say that he is king of all kings and he is Lord of all lords and that there is no other like him on the face of this earth who has ever existed in history. He is completely and totally unique as the only begotten son of God himself who is 100% humanity, 100% deity. There is not another like him in history and he is over all. When we begin to look at that specifically from a picture of Scripture, what we fail to realize, however, is that we are as totally dependent upon Him as believers every day of our lives as we were the day we gave our lives to Him. Romans chapter 14, Paul mentions this, and he, and he uh, makes it pretty clear. Romans chapter 14, look at what it says here. It says, not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. 
If we live, he's speaking of believers, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. I mean, that, that's a pretty simple way of putting it, that every moment of our lives as believers are to be dictated by our relationship to Christ. That, that everything about us, our, our minds, our hearts, our lives, our lifestyles, everything about us is to be dictated by our repentance from sin and our trust in the gospel and our surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. Everything about us is dictated by our relationship on a daily basis to Jesus Christ as believers. It transforms everything about us. We don't have these little compartments of our lives where this is my work compartment and this is my sports department and this is my... My little, uh, you know, uh, uh, things that I like to do on the side that nobody else knows about compartment. And then this is my God compartment. And when I need things, I come to this compartment. And whenever I want certain things, I come to this compartment. And when I need to be bailed out, I come to this compartment. Oh, yeah, Sunday mornings, I come to this compartment. But all the other stuff belongs to me. No, it doesn't operate that way. Paul says everything about the life of the Christian is his. He is Lord. He is curios. He is owner. He is master. He is in authority. He is in superiority over everything about us. And when we yielded our lives to Jesus Christ, we signed on the line to say, if we understood what we were doing, to say, my life is not my own. You have purchased it with a price, your own blood on the cross. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. And what it takes off the table is the potential for us to somehow be able to call the shots in certain areas of our lives. We don't do that anymore according to Scripture. So that if your husband or if your wife just ticks you off and you know, you're tired of being there, you know this has been going on for too long and I just want to get out because I'm not happy, that's not your call. Scripture speaks to that. And if He is our Lord, we submit to what He wants of us. And if all my coworkers in the workplace are cheating on their, their income expense reports and they're getting money back and they didn't really you know, spend it to begin with or they're changing numbers or they're telling one thing to customers and doing another and everybody else is doing it and I'm getting left behind and i got no sales going on, what's it going to hurt? Nobody's going to know. That's not your call, Christian. Scripture already speaks of that. It's called honesty. It's called integrity. We don't move the boundary lines just because a culture is doing that. We follow the direction of our who? Lord. We are in submission to Him as, our, as the one in authority over us. That's what lordship is. So that when we come to cultural issues, like the two that I looked at earlier, and the culture is crying one thing, and for anybody who stands against it, it cannot even be a normal adult conversation. There have to be terms and rhetoric thrown one way to the other, and the culture says this, and then you've got the scriptures that seem to say this, and then you've got certain groups of believers that get lost in the whole mix, some that are moving the boundary line saying, well, does it really matter how you live your life? Let's just let anybody in. And then you've got others that are angry and mad, shaking their fists and completely blind to the sins of their own life while they're doing that. And we completely forget that God has already set the boundaries in place. He's already called sin, sin. He's already told us how to walk, to live a life that honors Him, reflects Him. And the way this all plays in to church membership is that it is the responsibility, not just the privilege, but the responsibility of those who are members of any local church that proclaims the message of the gospel to reflect the purity and the, and the righteousness and the holiness of the Savior, listen, that we call Lord. 
And we don't do it angrily at people who still may be in sin. We don't do it angrily at people who snub their nose at God because while we were yet sinners, He still died for us. But man, we have got to be willing to encourage one another to live lives that honor Christ. And we've got to be willing to plant our feet and to call sin what God called sin first, but to do it with a tear in our eye like Jesus did and with a heart of compassion to meet people where they are. And the church has blown it in that regard today. With the homosexual issue, especially we've blown it. Completely unwilling to even have conversation with people that have chosen that particular lifestyle. Completely unwilling to pour our lives into them, to have any impact whatsoever. It's just been one big scream against that segment of our culture. And I have a sneaky suspicion Jesus didn't do it that way. And yet you don't move the boundary lines. So that if, using that as an example, not trying to rail on anything, but using those two questions that were asked, if someone says, I've chosen a homosexual lifestyle or I've chosen sexual immorality of any form or any fashion as my lifestyle, I don't care what the Bible says. I want to do whatever I desire. Can I be a member of a local church? The right response would be, according to Scripture, the message of the gospel changes lives. God set the parameters in place. We're not able to be able to change those parameters. Those who are part of the body of Christ, members of a local church, need to be living lives of repentance to put Jesus on display. Are you willing to do it? And if the answer is no, then the local church today, according to Scripture, says we love you, we pray for you, our doors are open to attend, but membership carries expectations of holiness. And you love, and you pray, and you reach, and you cry, and you face your own sin in your own life. And it's that that calls us to live our own lives of continued repentance and submission to the one we call Lord. And when the church today does that, the church will be called judgmental, wrongly so, when when it's done correctly. We'll be called bigoted and everything else in the book, just as our Lord was when he stood for what was true and right. And we have a lot of churches today that are dying, ineffective, reaching no one, and the only thing being accomplished is keeping each other comfortable while they lower the bar and lower the bar and lower the bar. And here's the danger, is that God has put in truth in place for a reason, and it's walking in his truth that enables us to know him. <laughs> he is our life. I wouldn't trade him for the And when we lower the bar and we gravitate away from truth, we miss God as a result. And so you look at the Christian church today. In many cases, ineffective. In many cases, watered down. In many cases, dying. And I don't think it's necessarily specifically because we don't have a list of everything that we need to know we're supposed to avoid and what we're supposed to embrace. I think, it's because, I think we have such issues as churches today because we've forgotten how to bow to Jesus as our Lord. And we've forgotten the inherent life-changing nature of the message of the gospel, that lives just look different when they're yielded to Jesus. Doesn't mean we've arrived. 
But life looks different when it's yielded to Jesus Christ. So, Brooks, what about membership? I don't really plan. I don't really plan to use my life in ministry to reach others. I don't really plan to make adjustments as God shows me. Well, we had a question that came in. That uh, again, I'll deal with this one on the blog, and there'll be a range of opinions. I understand that, but I want to use this. I'll answer this question the best I can on our blog, but I want to use it as an example today. This was turned in. How does the church view members who drink alcohol? That was an interesting question. It's anonymous. I've preached on that topic probably once I know of, maybe twice in 11 years. It's not like a stump that I grind. But when I got that question, I thought it was interesting because I think the better question is, how does the member who drinks alcohol view the church? (laughs) That might be the better question. We don't live in a vacuum, do we? We know what's at stake. Probably every hand would go up today if I asked, how many of you have had a family member or a, or a friend who's been negatively impacted by the effects of alcohol? Probably every hand would go up. Drunk driver, arrest, separated, isolated from family, alcoholism, you know, the list goes on and on. I mean, probably, I'm guessing, I think I'd be close. Probably every hand would go up if I asked, who has been negatively affected by someone you know has seen the negative effects of alcohol, almost every hand would probably go up. Significantly negatively affected. So, so we know what this does in culture. So rather than answering the question, you know, give me a verse that says I shouldn't do it, because there's not one in there. We could do biblical gymnastics, and I could try to drag verses out of context and make them say, thou shalt not drink. I believe that there's enough evidence in there between the lines that show. I mean, Proverbs says that, you know, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler. I mean, it just shows the negative implications of alcohol go far and wide. We know that. Here's the issue. Here's how this applies to church membership the way I see it. We don't approach questions like this, and there are a hundred others that could be just like it. it. Someone just happened to turn in this one. We don't approach these questions from a perspective of wisdom and from a perspective of witness. We just don't. We approach them from a perspective of this is what I want to do, and I don't care what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter that as I'm out and I'm drinking, use this as an example, you know, there, there's somebody a few seats away who, who has been sober for 30 days and they just got their chip and they're working on month number two. And they see me knocking back a bottle of beer. I don't really care about them. Oh yeah, they, you know, they, they've just potentially come to Christ and their, their life is just being radically changed. But, but those temptations are still real and those demons still pop their heads up. I don't really care about them because, dadgummit, I just want a bottle of beer with my steak. Why don't we not think about those kinds of questions from that perspective? Why don't we think about those kinds of questions from the perspective of the, of the students in our ministry who may be looking at you as a leader potentially? who may be looking at you as someone who's respected as an adult in this ministry, and you're here all the time, and you serve, and they see that, but they, they also know what you do. And all it would take would be one question of, hey, do you do this, Mr. So-and-so? And either you got to lie or you got to cause them to stumble, one or the other. How come we don't deal with questions like this from a perspective of our witness and from the perspective of wisdom? How come it doesn't matter that, that, that other people may be caused to stumble? How come it doesn't matter that, that our simple choices may have deeper ramifications negatively in the lives of other people around us? How come we don't think about that kind of stuff? It's because we've lost sight of the gospel. That's why. 
Because the message of the gospel proclaims and it teaches and it tells us that our life is not our own any longer, that our lives belong to one who we've chosen to yield them to as what? Lord. And that we don't get to call those shots. And where he says, as Paul does in Romans 14, and where, where Scripture paints a picture of us, that we need to do everything we can, even beating our bodies as a slave, so that we might present ourselves as useful in the hands of God, that we might use our lives. The short, brief moment we have left on this earth, there's a reason God didn't take you, Christian, onto heaven yet. And I can only expect, expect that it's because he wants to use your life right now to impact others. Why would we allow stumbling blocks that, that just to linger in our lives rather than to do everything we can to remove the obstacles, to throw off everything that hinders, and to run a race in a way that impacts those around us. And yet we argue and we wrangle over questions like this. When, when there are people that are stumbling and dying all around us, and our churches are filled with people who don't know what it means to live a separated life that just looks different, that causes people to thirst for a Savior that they see demonstrated in us. And you may have differences of opinion over that question. I, I like one of our folks who teaches one of our classes. I said, if you can pray about it as a surrendered believer and come to a place where your life is totally laid out and surrendered before Christ and God shows you, hey, this is okay, go ahead and do it. And that's between you and him. But as for me, there would be an awful lot of people that, would be, that will be negatively impacted if they saw me this Friday night at Outback Steakhouse knocking back a beer. And if I can't pop the top on a cold one while I'm preaching out the rest of this message and you not stumble, what makes you think that you can do it and get away with it in the lives of other people? There is no difference between us. But we don't look at it that way. Let's do what I want. I'm already a member. I'm already, I already prayed that prayer. I'm already good to go. I've already got grace. I'm already going to heaven. Don't expect anything of me. I can't help but think that God put churches in place to give believers a collective place to encourage one another life on life, to hold one another accountable, to remind each other of where the boundary lines are lest we cross them and end up in the woods with a wrecked life. But I can't also help but know that God has put the church in existence that we might be a shining light and a megaphone and a mirror of what a God who is holy looks like that we might live lives that are pure, that we might live lives that are sound, that we might live lives that are yielded. And though we stumble and though we slip up and though we still rebel and we still sin against him, may we at least be able to say that in this ministry we are found to be yielded and on the anvil as he makes us into who he wants us to be. You, know, you, can't, you can't preach a message like this and there not be implications. Let me give you two or three, and I'm done. There are implications when you look at stuff like this. This, this is big stuff. <laughs> I think one implication would be this. For those who are part of this ministry, as a member of this church, we have got to be involved in one another's lives. Because you don't know who on your row with you right now, who is also a fellow brother or sister in Christ in this church, may be seeking something that will wreck their lives, who may be struggling with something that will ultimately bring enormous consequences, or who may be in such a place of absolute heartache that they just need to see the love of Christ demonstrated. And if we don't have a lot of this as a church family, and we've got a lot of this, but we could always use more, then there are going to be people whose lives are not impacted in the least 
by those who have committed themselves to one another here. You've got to be more involved. We've got to be more involved in one another's lives than ever before. Number two, for those who are considering joining here, you may be here for your first or second Sunday. You may have been here for a while and you're thinking about joining. You know, we're not doing this series as like a promotion tool or something. You know, we didn't get this online. This is a great way to add to your membership. I'll be honest with you. I wish we had less members. And what I'm about to say might help <laughs> in just a second. Um, <laughs> the average uh, Southern Baptist Church has 200, and I think I, I said the number wrong early service, 233 members. Average Southern Baptist Church, 233 members on roll. Average 70 in attendance. The old saying is the FBI couldn't find most of the rest. There's something wrong with that. People ask me every now and then, how many members are there? Do, do you have there? And number one, they're not my members. <laughs> um, you know, we belong to him. But number two, we probably have 1,400 members, I'm guessing. And you see the numbers, about 550 on an average Sunday. Youngest to oldest. Not all of them are members. There, there's, now, there are those that are homebound. There, there are certain circumstances at times. You know, there's a real issue with that. So I would say this, that for those who are considering joining, if you're not at a place where, number one, you're, you're following Christ, you've repented of sin and you've placed your faith in Jesus, if, if you've already done that, but you just want another place to get your name on the line, you know, you want to just kind of move your membership, it's just a formality, you know, I was a member there and I want to be a member here, but you really don't have a desire to invest in one another or to be held accountable in your walk with Christ, you don't really plan to give systematically to help see the ministry that Christ died for to, to move forward, you, you don't really have any desire to grow in your faith, you, you don't really want to serve or have any plans to do that, at best, you're, you're your uh, membership, you're intending to probably be somewhat sporadic, you know, maybe here once or twice a month, maybe a couple months when you're not. It just really doesn't matter. Let me just say, continue to attend and continue to visit. We, we want you here, and we love you, and we want to pour into you. But man, there has to be a place where membership means more than that. <laughs> it just does. Jesus didn't die for that. And the gospel accomplishes more than just that. Boy, that was warm and fluffy. And then for those who are members here. You may have been a member here for a month. Or you may have been a member here for 50 years. You may have been a charter member. <laughs> somewhere in between. But if your membership has come to the place to where all it is is just a place where you go and you don't have any desire to be a part of what God is doing to reach these islands and to reach the city, and to look to change a world. And, and you don't want to use your life to be a part of that. You don't want to give towards that. You don't want to serve to reach kids like these behind me that were here this morning and to strengthen those that are around you. If your membership is just kind of being, having your name on a roll, it's always been there. And I've, I've, this isn't just off the top of my head. I thought about this. I said in the first service, I really prayed as well not say this. If that's all it is to you, I would say to do the minist this ministry and this community a favor. And just withdraw your membership. And keep attending. And let God work in your heart and work in your life. To where you come to the place. Not to where you're perfect. None of us would be here. Not to where you've got it all figured out. None of us would be here. But to where you come to the place. To where your membership in a local church. Is more reflective of what the Bible seems to speak of. That it's a life that's on the anvil. That says I've never gotten over the gospel. 
And yes, I have my dry times. And yes, I have my times where I wander. And there are times where I do things I shouldn't. But you know what? The overall tone of my life is that I'm yielded. And that I want to use my life to make a ministry and to make a difference in the lives of others. And I want God to use me and my little part of what I bring to the table. I want him to use me to impact others that they might see what he looks like through the life I live. If you've been a member here from day one, but you're not there, hey, in integrity, in honesty, my desire is that you would recognize the bar is higher. But if you're just unwilling, (laughs) man, just attend. And let's see what God will do through those that are just all in. Let's pray. God, a hard message. Hard one to preach. Lord, I I know that for you, when you walked this earth, that you said some hard things.